Take your Bible, paper, or digital, and find your way to John chapter 14, and we'll get there in just a few minutes. <clears throat> you know, I grew up in Melbourne, Florida during the early 60s, right as the space program was kicking, getting kicked off, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was kind of like a Wonder Years neighborhood, for those of you that remember that uh, show. I had two buddies, Daryl Miller and Mike McDonald, and, and we, did, we did everything together. We played football and baseball and basketball out in the streets in front of our houses or on sand lots uh, before they built houses on them. And uh, we loved to play championship wrestling from Florida. And that was back when wrestling was real, you understand. Um, we built uh, forts and tree houses out in the woods uh, behind our house. We played army. We would set up chairs for drum sets and um, take baseball bats for guitars and we would put on Beatle records and we would pretend like we were the Beatles and of course I was Paul. But um, uh, we had lots of, I have so many great memories from my growing up years and I remember well when Mike moved away and it seemed kind of surreal to a 12 year old. I mean, you know, you spend nearly every day with your best friends and and then one day you're standing out in front of his house and you're watching a moving van get full of the furniture in his house, his bedroom's being packed up, and then they pull out of the driveway. And, 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 and you know that everything is going to change, that nothing will be the same anymore. I mean, saying goodbye is hard. It's even harder when you have to say goodbye to the people you love who die. Now, many of you have experienced this. I'm, I'm an only child, don't have any brothers and sisters, and both my parents have died. My, all my grandparents are dead. All my aunts and uncles are, are dead. Most of my cousins are, are dead. And sometimes I'm kind of overcome by the fact that there's nobody alive that remembers uh, my childhood uh, with me. And I, I was one of these people, uh, I mean, and I, I, I carried this problem with me till I was well into my 50s, but I was always the kind of person that I, never where I was, I was always on my way to somewhere else. And if you're always on your way to somewhere else, you don't remember anything. And so I've kind of grieved over the fact that um, I've forgotten so much and I, I would just love to have someone around to just remember with. Goodbyes are hard, you know that, and that's the mood of the passage we're going to study today. Jesus has come to Jerusalem with his disciples, and they're thinking that as the Messiah, Jesus is going to show himself to the world as the Messiah. And, and, and here he is at this last Passover meal, and they're sharing it together, and he's talking not about the kingdom that's coming, he's talking about how he's leaving. And these men are confused and disillusioned and fearful, and they're facing a painful goodbye. And in John chapters 13 through 17, this passage is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. Jesus is trying to help these men prepare for his departure. He's telling them what life will be like after he's gone, and he actually is telling them that they'll be better off after he's gone, and I imagine that would just be uh, hard to swallow. I mean, how could they be better off without Jesus? That makes no sense whatsoever because they were coming to know God in a personal way through their close association with Jesus. They had, come, they had become convinced that he was the long-awaited Messiah who would come and set things right between people and God and set up the kingdom. He would restore Israel 
to its former place of glory, of prominence and prosperity in the world. And, and their question was, well, how, would, how, how is any of that gonna be possible if Jesus leaves? It didn't make any sense. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs show people who they are. M Messiahs save and restore and put things right. Messiahs start revolutions. They don't leave right when the revolution is set to begin. Their question was, how will it be possible to experience the life that Jesus promised after he's gone? And that question is not all that different from a question that many of us wrestle with from time to time. And like when we talk and or when we hear somebody talk about living in a personal relationship with God, that's kind of hard for us to get our minds around. I mean, how can you have a close personal relationship with someone you can't see or touch? How can you relate to someone who is, is not uh, a physically present? I mean, I, you know, I can know that Abraham Lincoln was our 16th president, and uh, I can read biographies about him. I can wa watch documentaries about him. You can study about him in school. You can read the things he wrote, his journals and his speeches, but you really can't say... I have a personal relationship with Abraham Lincoln. I mean, you know about Abraham Lincoln, who he was, where he lived, what he did, his failures and successes. You can learn about how he died and the effect that his presidency had on our country. You can even recognize a picture of Abraham Lincoln, but you can't really say, I have a personal relationship with Abraham Lincoln. You can do the same thing with Jesus. You can study and learn about him, but that's not the same as knowing him the way the disciples who followed him around Judea knew him. They had a firsthand knowledge of him. They had come to know him in a personal way. And so they loved Jesus and they trusted Jesus and they followed Jesus and obeyed Jesus. They had entrusted their lives to him because of the personal relationship they had. But the question is, how is that possible for us? I mean, I, don't, I no longer have a personal relationship with my parents now that they're gone, so how can we have a personal relationship with Jesus? How can we love Jesus, trust Jesus, follow Jesus when he is not physically present? And in chapter 14, Jesus answers that question both for his disciples and for us. Follow along as I read verses 15 through 31 in John chapter 14. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the 
and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me say, I'm going away, but I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So in John 14, Jesus is saying to these men, I am leaving you, but he says, I will come back. Verses 18 and 28, he says, when I return, I'm going to do something for you that will make it possible for you to enjoy the same kind of relationship that I have enjoyed with my father and that you have enjoyed with me. And everything he says in chapter 14 is focused on making this one point. I'm going to die, but through my death, I will do something for you that makes it possible for you to experience the presence of God in a real, tangible, personal way, in a much better way, because God will actually come and make his home in you. God will dwell in you. Now, we've got to get into these guys' heads uh, because we need to understand how these men would have heard the idea of God dwelling with his people. You see, for these men, when they first thought about God living uh, with people, the first thing that came to their minds was that God lived with his people in the temple. And their parents and teachers had told them that in the old days, after the temple had been built, and after the priest had brought the Ark of the Covenant into the holy place, and after they had left, a glorious cloud filled the temple, which symbolized the indwelling presence of God. And the people rejoiced because God was dwelling among his people. That's what the temple represented. The presence of God himself living among his people. And that's how the Jews in Jesus' day and in Old Testament times understood God dwelling with people in the temple. But John, the writer of... uh, of this biography of Jesus, he wrote in the very first chapter, in chapter one, verse 14, that Jesus, the living word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is the word tabernacled. That's temple language. And John is making the point that Jesus was replacing the temple. That rather than experiencing the presence of God in the temple, the people who lived when Jesus lived would experience the presence of God in and through Jesus. And that's exactly how the disciples experienced God. They had come to know Yahweh, God of Israel, in a real and tangible and personal way through Jesus. But now Jesus is leaving and that's not gonna be possible anymore. Everything is gonna change. And so Jesus was telling them though, I will come back and I will live with you and in you in a new way, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now that's 
what John 14, 15 to 31 is teaching. That's the big idea of the passage. But again, that idea is pretty hard to get your head around. I mean, because these disciples are still running uh, their messi- uh, Jesus and everything he's saying through their uh, messianic perception filters, and their idea of setting up a kingdom on earth doesn't fit with Jesus talking about the Spirit coming and living inside people. And that's why somebody asked the question in verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. In other words, Jesus, when we came to Jerusalem, we thought you were going to show everybody who you really are. We thought you would overthrow the pagan Roman governor and take your place as our king, and now you're telling us you're gonna die, and the only ones who will see who you really are is us. I mean, what gives? What's changed? Why aren't you gonna show yourself to the world? Show them who you really are. That's the question, and here's Jesus' answer, verse 23. Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Can you make any sense out of that? I mean, I mean, when I first read this, I was like, okay, Jesus, that's a good answer. I understand what you're saying, but it doesn't seem like you're answering the question that Judas asked. I mean, I just couldn't make it make any sense. So what is Jesus saying? In verse 22, Judas asked Jesus, why are you gonna show yourself to us and not to everybody else? And Jesus says, at this time, I'm only gonna show myself to those who love me and keep my word. And you guys have done that. So the Father and I are gonna come and we're gonna live inside you. But the people of this world, the people who do not love me or keep my word, the people who have rejected me and my words, which are also the Father's words, they will not receive the Holy Spirit at this time. So, so what's changed is the world has made up its mind. The religious leaders have rejected Jesus. They have not believed his words or taken them to heart. In, in, in fact, at the very moment, at that very moment, they were assembling the troops to, to have Jesus arrested and then to kill him. And so at that time, God would not set up his kingdom on earth. God would not take up permanent residence among his people in a physical kingdom. Jesus would not show himself to be the kingly Messiah they had hoped for. Why not? Because as John said in the first chapter, John 1.10, that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So Jesus had put an offer on the table, the offer of eternal life, and not just life with God after you die, but life right here on earth, but life right now, experiencing the love of God and the rule of God and the power of God now. He made that offer, but the people said, we will not have this man rule over us. And so the kingdom would be postponed. And God would come and make his home inside of us in the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus is saying. But who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does for those who love and follow Jesus wasn't all that clear to those men. And it's not all that clear for some of us as well. So I wanna unpack these two things. Who is the Holy Spirit 
And what does the Holy Spirit do for those who trust and follow Jesus? Now, in seminary, this is called the doctrine of pneumatology. Pneuma is spirit, ology is the study of, pneumatology is the study of the spirit, and that's what we're about to dig into. So first of all, who is the spirit? Number one, the Holy Spirit is our helper. Words used twice in, uh, in this passage in verse 16 and 26. The Greek word translated helper here is actually paraclete, not parakeet. Jesus is not promising him a pet bird. But uh, a paraclete is, is a very, very general term, and it means someone called alongside. Someone called alongside. The question is, someone called alongside to do what? Well, to do anything and everything that you need as you pursue life and mission with Jesus. Could be an intercessor, could be an advocate, could be a comforter, could be an encourager, could be a teacher, could be a counselor, could be someone to warn you, someone called alongside, someone with more wisdom, someone with more truth, more knowledge, someone with more power, someone with more experience, someone who comes along to help you in whatever help you need. That's the helper. Now, I know in some of your translations, it, you, your translations say, uh, call, call the Holy Spirit here, the comforter, and that is true. But that's a very narrow slice of all the ways that the Holy Spirit helps us. Now, notice in verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, there's two Greek words for the word another. There's heteros, which means another of a different kind, and then there's alos, which is, number, uh, is, uh, is uh, another of the same kind. He's saying, I'll send you another helper just like me. John, in his letter that we call 1 John, refers to Jesus as a paraclete. In 1 John 2, 1, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone sins, we have an advocate, paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus was the original paraclete. He was the original advocate, the original helper. And so Jesus is saying, I will send you another helper like me. He's saying, I, I have been your helper. I have been your counselor, your comforter. I walked alongside of you as your friend to strengthen you and to encourage you and to sometimes rebuke you, sometimes to speak for you. And he's saying, listen, I'm not leaving you alone. I'll send you another helper just like me, and he will continue to do for you what I have been doing for you, and he will be with you and in you and for you Forever, he will pick up where I left off. The Holy Spirit's a helper. Number two, the Holy Spirit's also called the spirit of truth. Now, the greatest gift that God has ever given the world is truth, is divine revelation, is divine truth. The truth about himself, the truth about us, uh, the truth about time and eternity, the truth about life and, and death, the truth about the beginning and the end of all things, the truth about judgment, the truth about salvation, the truth about heaven, the truth about hell. Truth is the greatest gift that God has ever given. And in a world of liars 
And in a world of lies and deceit, in a world where deception abounds because the whole world lies in the grips of, grip of the evil one, and through his deception uh, that comes through a, a mass of fallen angels identified as demons, he holds the whole world captive. The world is blind. But into that world, God has revealed his truth through the spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Now, what truth is Jesus talking about? Well, in verse 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. And then look at verse 17. Jesus says, the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it does not see him or know him. How did the, how, what is he talking about there? He's talking about the world cannot receive the spirit because it didn't see the spirit or know the spirit in me. Greatest sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They did not see the Spirit of God at work in Jesus. But you know him because he dwells with you in me, but he will be in you after I'm gone in the person of the Holy Spirit. So how did disciples see and know the Spirit of truth? They saw and knew the Spirit of truth as he was living and active in Jesus. They saw the power of the Spirit in what Jesus did. They heard the voice of the Spirit and what Jesus said. And so when Jesus says, I will not leave you alone, I will come to you, that's like, that's like the, the theme verse, the heartbeat of this uh, entire upper room discourse. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And they would not be orphans because the very same Spirit of truth that they had seen and heard in Jesus will be living in them when he returns to the Father. The point is, the Holy Spirit will come and fulfill the exact same role as Jesus had been fulfilling. The Holy Spirit fulfills the exact same role that Jesus had been fulfilling. So you have, think about this, you have a God who is true, you have a Christ who is the truth, and you have the Spirit who is the Spirit of truth, which leads us to point number three. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now, there is no passage in all of the Bible that that more clearly presents the Trinity than this one right here because all through this you have Jesus speaking of himself, Jesus speaking of the Father, and Jesus speaking of the Spirit. They're all three here. Look at verse 26. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, literally send as my representative, he will teach you all things, just like I have taught you, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, notice the close relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. There it is. And Jesus has said all through this passage, I will come to you, verse 18. He said, my Father and I will come and make our home in you, verse 23. And he said, the Spirit of truth will be in you, in verse 17. Are you seeing this? The whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, indwells everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Not just the Holy Spirit, but the Father and Son live in you through the Holy Spirit. One more time. The full 
Trinitarian glory of God lives in you. You are the temple of the living God. Now, is that not a staggering reality? You are the temple of the Trinity. And you remember when on the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when it was like Jesus' flesh became translucent and this flame and brilliance burst out of him? If that were possible for us, the same thing would be happening. That Godhead, that divine Shekinah glory, that's what's inside of us. In the Trinity, the Trinity living inside. Now, most of you are familiar with the idea of the Trinity, but it is difficult to get your mind around. Um, I mean, in, in seminary, we spent a whole semester studying the Trinity, I mean, four months, and it was like studying something that when the final exam came, you wanted to just write, I don't know, I still don't understand. <laughs> I mean, you know, like that passage in, in the, at the end of Second, Third John, it says, there's much I wanted to write to you with pen and ink, but I decided not to, you know. There was actually a student that wrote that on an essay question in seminary. The professor put a smiley face and a big red X through it, so it, it didn't count. But how, I mean, really, though, how can my finite, limited mind understand an infinite, eternal God? Now, I like what Vance Havner, an old Baptist preacher that uh, was around in, in my growing up years, I, I like what Vance Havner said about the Trinity. He said, I don't understand all there is to know about electricity, but I'm not going to sit in the dark. <laughs> I like that. Now, really quick, there are three basic propositions that make up our understanding of the Trinity. Here they are. Uh, God is three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, that's what I took away from four months in seminary. God is three and one and one and three. God is three persons, and each person is fully God, but there is one God. How does that work? <laughs> I don't have a clue. Now, over the years, people have come up with some illustrations that are somewhat helpful, like the Trinity is like an egg. It's, 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 it's like an egg is one thing, but it's made up of a yolk and a yellow and a shell. Or the Trinity is like a rope with three strands. It's one rope, but it has three strands. Or it's like water, H2O, that has one molecular makeup, but it exists in three forms, liquid, gas, and solid. And those are somewhat helpful, but they all fall short of the glory of God. They all fall short of expressing the whole amazing, powerful, mysterious truth that God is three in one and one in three, but that's the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us. Now, one way of understanding the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit is to think about how they relate to one another and then how they relate to us. Theologians, you get this in seminary, they say that the, that the, the, the members of the Godhead have ontological being. Now, uh, so we just need to pretend like we're in seminary. Like when I was a kid, I pretended like I was in the Beatles, so just pretend like you're in seminary for a minute, all right? Aunt is being, ology is study. So we're talking about the study of being, and we're talking specifically about God. Now here, as Father, Son, and Spirit relate to each other, they are equal in nature, in being and nature, but as they relate to us, they are subordinate to one another in their actions and roles. 
Now, that helps because there's a, if you believe that it's three and one and one and three and they're all equal, when Jesus says in verse 28, the Father is greater than I, you got a problem. Unless you understand that when Jesus says the Father is greater than I, he's talking about it this way. As they relate to each other, they're equal, but as they relate to us, they've subordinated themselves to one another in carrying out the plan of God. And in carrying out the plan of God, the Father sends the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, and the Spirit glorifies the Son. And you have this Trinitarian emphasis all through this passage, but especially in verse 20. Notice this, this is an amazing verse. In that day, in the day that I return to you in the person of the Spirit, in that day you will know, look at this, I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So I I put together this graphic to help you kind of visualize this. Jesus is saying, I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. But he also says that the Father and I take up residence in you, and he also says the Spirit of truth is living in you. So you're surrounded by by the Godhead, and you've got the Godhead living inside you. The point is, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you will experience the presence of God through the personality of the Son in the person of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit living in you, you experience the presence of God. What is that like? It's like Jesus in the personality of the Son in the person of the Spirit. In other words, you have all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in you just as it did in Jesus. And that being true, how can we ever doubt the Father's love for us? How could we ever doubt Jesus being ever present with us? How could we ever doubt the Spirit's willingness to help us? That's staggering, amazing. It's all right here in this passage. So who's the Holy Spirit? He's our helper, helper, our comforter, our counselor, our advocate, our intercessor, our teacher. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's not a force, not a power, a person, a real person whom the Father sends in the name of Jesus to live inside of us. Okay, so that's who the Spirit is, what does the Spirit do, that's second. Look back at verse 26 one more time. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. So number one, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. We see that in verses 17 and 26. He teaches us truth. Now, first of all, this is the explanation of how we got the Gospels and the epistles. This is how we got our New Testament. These men had memories of their time with Jesus, but as you know, memory is a bad thing to rely on. As I said, I've forgotten most of my life, and for me, there's no one to remember with me. For these men, if all they had were their memories, a lot of what Jesus said and did would have been lost, or it would have been distorted as they were trying to remember the best they could, but memory's not all that good to trust. So, 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 so when the Spirit came to dwell in the apostles, 
the Spirit brought back to their minds the things that Jesus said and did, and they wrote those things down and explained them more fully and applied them to the issues and problems that the early church was facing. And so what you have in that New Testament that you're holding in your hand is a God-breathed, inerrant, accurate record of what God wants us to know about the essentials of faith in Christ. Now, the Holy Spirit is our teacher, and he brings back to your mind what Jesus taught you. He helps you to remember, and he brings back to your mind uh, the, the scriptures that you have heard and that you have read and that you have studied and that you have memorized. I remember when this became real to me for the very first time. I was at Florida State and I was an RA in the dorm. It was a co-ed dorm, guys on one side, gals on the other side. And every night, if you were in the cage down on the first floor, um, at, at the end of the night, you had to walk all the floors, check all the doors and all the windows and you'd have to walk down the girls' side. So when, I, when you would go down the girls' hallway, you would say, man on the hall, and then you'd walk on down. So it was about 1.30 one night, and I'm going down the hall, and I announce myself. I get right to the last room before going out into the stairwell, and the door swings open, and this really, really good-looking girl opens the door, she grabs me and she looks up at me and says, sleep with me. Now, she was drunk, I, I give you that, but uh, <laughs> I mean, this, 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 this didn't happen to me all the time like this. And uh, so uh, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I can't do that. Like I walked with the Lord and, and I, like I can't do that, but it, it, maybe I could just kiss her. And I mean, I heard this verse come ringing out of some way back, Proverbs 6, can a man take fire in his chest and not be burned? And I'm looking down and I'm going, this is fire. And so I said, nope, sorry. And I pushed her back in and shut the door. And then I ran away like Joseph, and, but I didn't leave my cloak behind. <laughs> and I, and, and I, you know, that's happened to me many times. Not, not the proposition, not the. <laughs> the Holy Spirit bringing scripture back to mind when I needed it. Amen. Yes. All right, number two. Uh, the Holy Spirit's our teacher. He's our peace. Now look at verse 27. And what does verse 27 follow? Verse 26, which verse 26 is talking about the Spirit, Right? So Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come back. Now no doubt you have seen the popular slogan on memes and t-shirts and billboards, keep calm and, and then you fill in the blank, right? You've seen this. Yeah, keep calm and carry on, keep calm, stay home and chill, Keep calm, live your dreams. Keep calm and eat kale. I think not. Uh, keep calm and eat a donut. Better. Keep calm and eat bacon. Even better. Yes. Keep calm and avoid zombies. Keep calm and blame the Russians. I can't keep calm. I'm Italian. 
And this one's my favorite. <laughs> Keep calm. Oh, who are we kidding? <laughs> I think that's how the disciples were hearing all of this. Jesus is saying, keep calm, I'm giving you my peace. Now earlier he said, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans, which was a reference to the Holy Spirit, so this peace is related to his coming to us in the Spirit, and Jesus calls this my peace, which is not like the world's peace, false peace. What's the difference? Well, this peace, the peace of Jesus, is connected with the Spirit, and the Spirit is about relationship. So the peace of Jesus is relational peace. The peace of the world is a circumstantial peace. And we find peace or well-being in our relationship with God who tells us the truth about life. We find peace in our relationship with God who makes us these amazing promises. But the only peace that the world knows is a fragile peace which is lost when circumstances change. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that we can experience right in the midst of trouble, right in the middle of distress and disappointment and heartache and pressure. And that peace becomes personal and experiential through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, keep calm and lean into the Spirit. Keep calm and trust the promises of God. Keep calm, I have given you my peace. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Let me just sum it up this way. As the Spirit of truth, he teaches us. He brings God's word back to our minds. He illuminates our minds to understand God's truth. And as our helper, counselor, and comforter, he gives us peace, a peace that flows out of our relationship with God and not from the circumstances of life. So let me see if I can sum all this up. The question we began with is how can we have a personal relationship with Jesus when Jesus is not physically present with us? And the answer for both those disciples and for us is this. The Holy Spirit makes our relationship with God personal. It is the Spirit that makes our relationship with God personal. The Holy Spirit brings God home to you. The Holy Spirit makes your relationship with God experiential. He helps you, strengthens you, comforts you, encourages you, intercedes for you when you don't know how to pray. He enables you to, dis to know the truth and to discern truth and, from error. And, Jesus, he, uh, and the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' peace to our troubled hearts even in the most distressing circumstances in real tangible, personal ways. And that's power. That is power. The Holy Spirit's like a power source. To try to live the Christian life and leave the Holy Spirit out, it's like trying to drive a car without an engine. It's like trying to operate an appliance without plugging it in. I mean, for me, it's like starting the day without coffee. Nah, that's not a good, that's not a good illustration. I grant you that. Maybe not the best illustration. One of the best illustrations, though, is I, that I've ever seen is that the Holy Spirit is like a glove. Like, like, this is nothing, right? This is pretty useless. But this is us dead in trespasses and sins. But God sends his Spirit inside of us, and if we can get our fingers in the right spots, uh, so the Holy Spirit animates us, empowers us, energizes us, enlivens us, gives us life. 
And the, and the, and the, and, and the scripture is clear that without the Holy Spirit, we're just, we're just a limp glove that can't do anything. The big idea is this, the Holy Spirit enables the followers of Jesus to experience his presence and access his power. The Holy Spirit enables the followers of Jesus to experience his presence and access his power. Now, I know, I know, I know what you're saying, but Charlie, I hear what you're saying. I can see that Jesus is saying what you're saying, I think, but still, you can't see the Holy Spirit either. I mean, he is kind of vague, right? I mean, there's the Holy Ghost. You know, he's ghostly. I mean, he's a spirit. The only thing I can tell you is you gotta step into this life of faith in Jesus to experience what Jesus promises here. You gotta take the step. You gotta step into this life of faith in order to experience what, the, what Jesus is promising here. You gotta trust Jesus. Receive him as your savior. Take him at his word, all of it. Not just the part about going to heaven when you die. You have to trust that he and he alone can make life with God possible. You have to trust in his death and his resurrection as your hope for forgiveness and life. And you trust that everything he says is true and right to the point that you're looking for ways to put what he says and what he tells us to do into practice. You love him and obey him, as he says here. And when you step into this life with Jesus through faith, God breathes his life into you. He puts his own spirit in you, and Father, Son, and Spirit make their home in you, and you experience his presence and power and provision and peace as you grow to love Jesus and follow him. Here's the deal, you can't experience this life as an outsider. Jesus said the world can't see or know or understand these things. Only those who hear my word and believe my word, only those who love me and keep my commandments experience the ministry of the Spirit. That's what verses 15, 21, 23, and 24 say. The constant refrain only those who trust me and love me and follow me can know, can know me and this life in the spirit that I've made possible for you through my death. Now, listen, that's true for insiders. You can have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, but it's not a priority for you to know Jesus' words or obey him. But you can only experience life in the Spirit. You can only experience the ministry of the Spirit, the help of the Spirit. If you love Jesus more than anything else, and if you love Jesus so much that you obey him no matter what. So tomorrow, you're gonna go back to work, or you're gonna go back to school, or you're gonna wish your kids were back in school. <laughs> tomorrow, you're gonna go about your daily responsibilities. So how does what we talked about today impact tomorrow? Well, I would like to suggest to you that this week, invite the Holy Spirit to come into everything that you're dealing with. The prayer, come Holy Spirit, is one of the most ancient prayers of the church, both in Catholicism and in Protestantism. Come Holy Spirit, pray, ask, Come, Holy Spirit, and then ask the helper to help you. Do you need more wisdom? Ask for it. Do you need more discernment, more understanding? Ask the helper for it. Do you need guidance, encouragement, comfort, strength? You need help in prayer? Ask the helper. 
Do you need the peace of Jesus to keep you calm in all the chaos that's going on in our crazy world today? Ask the Holy Spirit to give you that calm as you try to navigate everything. This week, all through the week, all through each day, pray, come Holy Spirit, help me. Come Holy Spirit, help me, and then just fill in the blank. Asking the Spirit to help you with whatever you need.